by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the upcoming elections in the Philippines and also going to be discussing how uh, different uh, progressive and anti-imperialist groups in the United States are orienting towards our current political moment. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, on Tuesday this week, a federal judge in Florida, of course it was Florida, ruled that the 14-month-old mask mandate for public transportation is illegal. Soon after the announcement, all major airline carriers, including American Airlines and Delta and United, as well as national train line Amtrak, relaxed their mask restrictions immediately. Some with celebratory messages or even actual celebrations by the flight crews. The ruling by U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell, an appointee of President Donald Trump, came in a lawsuit filed last year in Tampa, Florida, by a group called the Health Freedom Defense Fund. This group sued the Biden administration over mandates that masks must be worn on public transportation, where hundreds of people are stuffed in close proximity to others in a sealed environment with inadequate airflow, while a virus that is spread by being in close proximity to people who have the virus, who cough, sneeze, and otherwise spray droplets of that virus that others inhale, is still going on. That pandemic is still a thing, y'all. But in the aftermath of the ruling on social media, numerous posts reflected passengers on planes cheering as pilots announced an end to the mask mandates. One passenger shared a video on Twitter of a flight attendant on his plane singing, throw away your masks, as he practically skipped down the aisle with a trash bag for passengers to dump their masks into, and many passengers did just that. Another tweet showed flight attendants dancing in the aisles. It seems that most people removed their masks as soon as they were told that they could. And of course, flight attendants are happy that the mandate has been lifted because they've been the ones that have had to enforce the mandates. In 2021, 65% of unruly passenger incidents reported were related to masks. And the Association of Flight Attendants discovered that 85% of all flight attendants personally had to deal with unruly passengers in 2021, with 17% experiencing violence because of masks. So flight attendants have had to deal with people so angry at being required to wear a mask in the close quarters of airline travel that they have been violent towards airline staff. And in this country, 988,000 people have died from that virus in the two years since the beginning of the pandemic, that virus that, you know, these people think is not serious. But the virus has been deadly to those people, 988,000 people, and is still deadly to some. But people have been angry about needing to wear a mask so as not to spread the virus further. 
So those 988,000 people dead from the virus didn't stop the Health Freedom Defense Fund from filing a lawsuit to end mask mandates on public transportation last year. Their deaths didn't stop the judge in Florida from ruling to strike them down either. The Health Freedom Defense Fund didn't file a lawsuit to force the government to provide PPE to every citizen, as it should have done early in the pandemic. You know, the PPE that Trump didn't activate the Defense Production Act for industry to manufacture PPE and that Biden didn't really do either. They didn't file their lawsuit to force employers to make the $2 to $4 an hour COVID pay bonus for so-called essential workers permanent. They didn't file their lawsuit to force employers to provide employees with PPE to improve their COVID protocols to provide their employees with paid sick leave. They didn't sue to force the federal government to pay for the booster shots that people now have to pay for, unlike the vaccines. They didn't sue to extend the eviction moratorium or to just cancel the rent to keep people from being evicted during the ongoing pandemic or to cancel student loan debt to give people relief that this government can definitely afford since it gave the airline industry all that money to stay afloat in the beginning of the pandemic. They didn't sue for improved health care infrastructure or for government paying for COVID treatments or Medicare for all. None of that. The Health Freedom Defense Fund sued for the freedom of people who do not think this virus is a serious health threat to themselves, not to be forced to wear a mask on densely populated, poorly ventilated, close quarters public transportation. If other people get sick from the virus, then that environment is inconsequential and irrelevant to the people who cheered not having to wear a mask when traveling. In short, they don't care if anyone else gets sick and dies. And this is proven by a recent study that has shown that people's concern about the virus decreased when it was realized that more people of color died from the virus than white people have. Psychologists at the University of Georgia's Department of Social Science and Medicine made this conclusion following an in-depth study of racial disparities during the pandemic, noting that when white people in the U.S. were more aware of racial disparities in COVID-19, they were less fearful of COVID-19. Allison Skinner Darkinu, assistant professor of psychology at the University of Georgia and co-author of the study said, quote, we found evidence of less empathy for people who are vulnerable to COVID-19. And we also found evidence of reduced support for safety precautions to prevent the spread of COVID-19. So when I say these people who cheered the ending of mask mandates for travel don't care if other people become affected with the virus and even die, that's not my opinion. And that's not hyperbole. The study shows that white people mostly showed less concern about COVID and its impact when they believe it is not a white people problem. So basically, the Health Freedom Fund sued for white people's right to put other people that they don't care about at risk for catching the virus by defending their freedom not to have to put a little piece of cloth over their nose and mouth. And Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel agreed with them. All that was being asked of people was to wear a little face mask out of consideration for other people's health.
But when you have no consideration for the lives of people who are not you and not like you, being asked to do the barest minimum out of consideration for those people, well, I guess it just feels like oppression, even if it means some of those other people will die. Yay, freedom. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points and you are listening to By the Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. We're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. And uh, Jackie, I just wanted to talk about the fact that uh, a British magistrate's court has ordered the extradition of uh, journalist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States and has sent this extradition request to Home Office Secretary uh, Preeti Patel uh, for their approval. And this order comes uh, a little more than a month after the the Supreme Court of the UK refused to hear Assange's uh, appeal. And I just wanted to you know say a couple of things about Patel and how it kind of doesn't look great in terms of uh, Assange's prospects. I mean, Pretty Patel and the Home Office actually support expanding uh, something in the UK called the Official Secrets Law, which, uh, according to Mohammed El Mazi, journalist in front of the show, quote, would expand possible imprisonment for leakers, recipients of leaks, and secondary publishers, including journalists, from the current maximum of two years to as high as 14 years. In prison. Uh, the Home Office also contends that there isn't really a difference between, quote, espionage and the most serious unauthorized disclosures, which includes what Pretty Patel would call, quote, onward disclosure. And according to uh, Matt Kennard, who's the chief investigator of Declassified UK, um, they said that Pretty Patel was on the advisory board of a right wing CIA linked group called the Henry Jackson Society, which for over over a decade has been attacking Julian Assange in the press. And so, I mean, not only is this uh, obviously a dangerous and important time for uh, Julian Assange as an individual, but I, I really feel like this is a serious moment for press freedom as we understand it. You know what I mean? In a number of ways, I think particularly now within the context of the Ukraine war and how uh, the U.S., and the West, uh, including uh, the UK and British governments, are uh, basically completely suppressing, you know, any alternative perspectives on this war in Ukraine and, and have, you know, deplatformed and banned, you know, uh, Russian state media platforms um, uh, under the guise of stopping, quote unquote, uh, misinformation. But, you know, when we look at the case of Julian Assange and how the governments of the UK and the U.S. have, I mean, been attacking him from uh, uh, the very beginning, uh, it's just clear that, you know, these Western, you know, supposedly sophisticated and high minded and progressive thinking standard bearers for civilization and democracy that for all their pronouncements, they don't actually care about a free press and that a press to them um, is only free up until the point that it criticizes 
or uh, more to the point, exposes the crimes of these governments, which is precisely what um, uh, Julian Assange was doing with uh, publishing uh, WikiLeaks in a number of ways, you know, including the, you know, what's known as the collateral murder um, tape, which, you know, just blatantly shows, you know, the violence of uh, the U.S. military in a number of ways. And I think we've seen similar things with uh, whistleblowers like uh, uh, Chelsea Manning and people like this. I mean, just incredible harassment, intimidation, in the case of Assange, outright torture um, because he did journalism. The very thing that, you know, we're all told uh, should be upheld and the right to it enshrined. And I feel like I should also note that at least in the U.S., there was, you know, no small number of mainstream media platforms that used uh, uh, WikiLeaks and then uh, basically turned around and either ignored the situation with Assange or just out and out joined in the attack. And so it's a dangerous time for for press freedom and for real journalism that isn't simply, you know, syncophantic to, you know, the ruling class or to uh, uh, imperialism. And I think it just sort of, in a way, heightens the danger of our political moment in a number of ways, Jackie. Yeah, it definitely does. And I mean, the in, in the UK, the Office for Security and Counterterrorism, which is a part of the UK Home Office, and it's the division that's responsible for MI5, which is the equivalent of uh, the FBI in, in Britain, um, actually views uh, journalism as an act capable of far more serious damage than traditional espionage. So literally reporting... The truth is deemed more dangerous than like someone from another country uh, infiltrating a government agency and, uh, you know, leaking their quote unquote official secrets. So, I mean, in in the case of Assange in the UK, they've said the quiet part out loud uh, about the way the state uh, security apparatus views journalists and journalism. It's they don't view it as a tool of information. They view it as a threat especially when the journalism is being done not by them, meaning it's not propaganda. So, you know, just the, the, the conflicts of interest that looks like to me in regard to this person, Patel, who is going to make the decision on the order to extradite Assange, just the fact that that is not being addressed. Uh, and I think that the attorneys for Assange have four weeks to introduce uh, new evidence that they say they have that they have not been able to present uh, before um, to hopefully get Patel to decide not to uh, agree to extradite Assange. Just when I look at everything, the way these people are connected, the way these people in the UK are connected to the intelligence apparatus in the U.S., I try to maintain revolutionary optimism, Sean, but I I agree with you. It is not looking like Assange will not be extradited. I'm hoping for a a change of course by the UK and the Home Office, but it's not looking like that's that's going to happen because they've been trying to go after Assange for 10 years, a decade. So I, I, I am hoping 
that uh, uh, his defense is able to present new evidence that keeps him from being extradited. Um, but we have to be clear and honest that, you know, the the home office in the UK, MI5, uh, this Preeti Patel person, uh, even the courts in the UK, they are not independent actors. They are acting under the influence and in consort with the United States government that has wanted Julian Assange thrown in prison, uh, preferably for the rest of his life, uh, for the better part of a decade. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there is still a bit to be seen. I was reading a piece about this issue on the dissenter.org. And according to it, um, if that extradition uh, order is approved by Patel, Assange's attorneys may be able to request permission to appeal and things like that. So there may still be a couple of things that they may be able to try. But what it's really a stark reminder of, Jackie, is the fact that, you know, uh, journalism, real you know, journalism is an ideological tool. You know, and in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in the West, it is an ideological tool for the ruling class that controls it. It's billionaires and corporations and these monopolies that that uh, determine what the American people see as true and legitimate and obviously see anything that uh, runs counter to that or anything that challenges that as something that must be a target for destruction, as we see in the case of Julian Assange. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the upcoming elections in the Philippines. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Joe Osbaker, co-chair of the Labor Committee of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Sean. Uh, great to talk with you and, and uh, my old friend, Jackie. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Joe, on May 9th, uh, the people of the Philippines will be headed to the polls to elect their new president as the term of current president, Rodrigo Duterte, will be coming to an end. Now, of course, the administration and the presidency of Rodrigo Duterte is marked, I think, by really incredible violence against uh, democratic and progressive elements inside the Philippines. I mean, really against uh, poor and working people in the country in general, uh, in terms of this uh, blood-soaked war on drugs that uh, Duterte has uh, sent against the people of the Philippines. And I know you had the opportunity recently to be in uh, uh, the Philippines uh, to witness some of what's happening there on the ground, Joe. And so I was hoping you could help us understand not only some of the finer details of uh, the context of this election, who was involved in things like this, but uh, how people on the ground are orienting towards it at this point. Sure. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. And I'll tell you, I the, the whole time I was there, <clears throat> I just kept thinking about, uh, you know, the line from, uh, from Tupac, 
you know, when he said, you know, uh, they have a war on drugs instead of a war on poverty. Uh, and they have a war on the poor so the police can po can bother me um, or something to that effect, uh, because uh, it was it was just palpable the repression that uh you know the activists uh in all fronts of struggle are facing um you know we uh you know myself and a few other solidarity activists we uh we spent most of the time in manila but <clears throat> we traveled north of manila to some smaller uh cities uh and uh, and then we heard from people from other parts of the country as well and everyone had, you know, similar stories of, uh, you know, both the, you know, the, the, the military, um, you know, the armed forces of the Philippines and the Philippine National Police, both carrying out just, you know, incredible repression, massacres happening on, a, you know, a, 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 you know a, some sort of regular basis. Um, there had been a massacre uh, of Lumad which is an indigenous group in the southern part of the Philippines in March, just before just before our delegation. And uh, and yeah, it was uh, it was, you know, you could see the stress and hear the stress in the voices of the activists that we were meeting with, um, which, you know, just for us, it just made the point all the all the stronger about the need for us to be there, um, you know, to stand with them uh in uh, in solidarity yeah definitely and you know duterte also promised in 2016 when he uh, uh ran uh for election uh promising to end the rule of the corrupt wealthy elite that had run the country since uh its independence from u.s occupation in 1946 he promised to wage a war on drugs that he claimed was to uh was was a, was to target the elites including he named four generals that he uh, identified it in a campaign speech that he said were responsible for the flow of drugs coming into the country. But he didn't actually target any of the elites that he claimed were responsible for uh, the drugs coming into the country. What did he actually do, Joe? Yes, it's, uh, well, we here in the United States uh, have a similar experience uh, that the, the Filipinos um, have had with their elected officials. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a longtime trade unionist, and one of the things I learned from the veterans of the labor movement when I first got involved 30 some years ago, uh, that the, the veteran negotiators would would say to me, "How do you know when management is lying?" Answer: When their lips are moving, um, and you, you know, and that can be applied just as well to, you know, politicians. And Duterte, you know, ran with all of these commitments that he made to, you know, respect for human rights, to, you know, to combat the, you know, the traditional elite, um, which in the Philippines, by the way, you know, the traditional elite there are, are those families that, that are, you know, those great landlords with, you know, basically land that was handed down to them by the Spanish colonizers over the hundreds of years of Spanish colonization. But and 
and I, you know, when I was there actually in 2016, just after Duterte was elected, and I saw a lot of poor and working people who had who believed him, who voted for him, who campaigned for him, um, and uh, and thought that that he was going to, you know, keep those promises. But I did talk to some wiser activists, uh, people who'd been around the bend a few times. And when I asked them, well, you know, is this going to work? Do you do you think Duterte is going to do all the things he campaigned on? And one of the one of the uh, activists said to me, she she shrugged her shoulders and she said, well, we might get six months of honeymoon. And if if that's the case, she said, we'll consolidate our organizing. Uh, and uh, and I'm and I'm certain that she did. Uh, and then, you know, it was almost six months to the day after his election victory that he, you know, he turned on a dime and began to attack the labor unions, the peasant organizations, the student groups, the human rights groups, uh, the indigenous communities. And that's been the story of the last, you know, the last five and a half years. Yeah. And it also seems that um, Duterte has a vested interest in who will become the next uh, president of uh, the Philippines, because it, it appears that one of the main contenders is Bong Bong Marcos, who is running for president. And he actually is the son of Ferdinand Marcos, who was the dictator of the Philippines for years. And none other than uh, Duterte's own daughter reportedly will be running as vice president um, on the ticket with Marcos. Excuse me, with Marcos. And uh, given just uh, all the crimes that uh, Duterte is guilty of committing against the people of uh, uh, the Philippines, I mean, in terms of immunity and things like that, it seems clear that who becomes the next president of the Philippines has a direct impact on uh, Duterte's future as well. Oh, that's absolutely the case. Um, the last day or the next to the last day that I was there, I was only in the country for eight days. It was kind of a whirlwind trip. Um, but uh, I met with uh, a woman named Tina Palabai, who's the director of the um, uh, human rights group called Kara Patan. Um, and and Tina has been here in the U.S. a couple times when she was here, uh, I think the last time in 2019. Um, we had a meeting, the Chicago Alliance had a meeting with her, but, um, but yeah, she made it very clear that uh, Duterte um, is uh, quite worried about his future because the, the movement there has effectively, uh, you know, brought, um, you know, just so much evidence of his, you know, human rights abuses and crimes to the International Criminal Court to the United Nations, you know, High Commission on Human Rights, um, and to other international bodies, um, and uh, uh, and his uh, uh, his uh, uh, you know he's got immunity as long as he's in office, but that immunity ends July first when the new administration takes office. So he's he's you know he actually put his daughter up to run for president, but then um, the Marcos. Uh, family still has 
their own strings to pull. And so uh, his daughter, Sarah, Sarah, ended up having to accept a vice uh, presidency slot running with with the, you know, the, the son of uh, the Marcoses. Um, uh, Tina, I actually told me that Imelda Marcos, Americans will remember her as the, the you know, the, the woman with all of the shoes when when the, re the revolution happened. Uh, the People's Power Revolution happened in 1986, and the dictatorship was forced out of office uh, when they when they raided the Malacanang Palace in Manila. It was something like she had like a thousand pairs of shoes um, in her uh, in her apartment there. Um, anyway, uh, according to Tina, uh, uh, she wanted to be <laughs> the presidential candidate. But she couldn't get enough people to throw in for that, so then she put her uh, she put their son up, um, and you know they were they were successful in in the game. The, the you know every every country's electoral politics um, is a different a slightly different game, um, but uh, uh, but yeah, Duterte's daughter couldn't get enough you know another enough of the other wealthy elites to throw in behind her, so she's she's playing second fiddle to the son of the old dictator. The daughter of the new dictator is running as number two to the son of the old dictator. But either way, you know, it's pretty clear that Duterte is banking on their victory to keep himself out of prison. Yeah. And as all of this, uh, you know, nepotism in the Philippine elections is going on, there is the issue of red tagging and or or as you point out in the piece you wrote about this uh, terror tagging, which you were actually a victim of. So can you explain a little bit what that means and how uh, Duterte is using uh, red tagging and terror tagging to uh, discredit uh, uh, legitimate uh left voices in the election yes uh in the election and and more generally um every uh ev again every front of the people's movements uh is being targeted by um the the national government uh it's very reminiscent of the mccarthyite period in the u.s um the uh the federal government set up an organization uh, a little over a year and a half ago, I believe, called the National Task Force uh, to end uh, uh, local communist armed conflict. And, you know, what they're what this is an allusion to is that the Philippines is the home of the longest running civil war in the world since the late 1960s. There's been a, uh, a, a new people's army in the countryside. And, and it's true. The new people's army has a socialist orientation. Um, the Communist Party of the Philippines uh, was involved in, in helping to start the new people's army. But the new people's army um, is not a terrorist organization. It's a very popular uh, army that um, that has the support of millions of you know, very poor people in the, you know, in the, you know, the rural areas of the Philippines. And, the you know, the Philippines is mostly rural. It's a mainly peasant society. So the, um, uh, so this NTF-LCAC 
has for you know the last several years been going after every activist that speaks out against Duterte or against his policies um, and either on social media, uh, you know, on the, you know, they have this, the woman who's the, who's the head of NTF LCAC, she goes on TV pretty much on a nightly basis. Benoit, I think her last name is, she goes on TV on a nightly basis and, you know, it's shades of Joe McCarthy. She has a list of people's names and she reads them out uh, to say these people are communists or these people are terrorists. Um, and, and this is no laughing matter. I mean, you know, here in, in our history, you know, people who were attacked for being communists or leftists in the 1950s, you know, they, they you know, they, 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 you know, it was very likely that they would lose their jobs and, you know, a good possibility they might end up, you know, uh, facing some time in prison. But in the Philippines, you get red tagged or terror tagged, you could end up, you know, at the end of an assassin's bullet um, or uh, or being, you know, or being captured by the police or the military and tortured. Um, and, you know, there have been countless cases of people being tortured to death. Uh, so so, you know, much to my surprise and to my shock on the Sunday, Palm Sunday, actually, of all things, uh, you know, I, I awoke to find um, five foot by four foot full color banners with my face on them and my name, including my middle name. And, you know, Joseph Gerard Osbaker. And I got to tell you, Jackie, the only person who uses my middle name is my 90 year old mother. And only when I'm in serious trouble. Um, and, and so it was pretty shocking to come out of the hotel and see this banner. And there were several different varieties, but the most ominous had my picture and said, Joseph Gerard Osbaker, communist terrorist ally. And, you know, and I had like an out of body experience. I thought, Am am I gonna, you know, am I gonna be picked up with the police, by the police? You know, am am I gonna end up, you know, in a in a jail cell in Manila? This was in Manila, um, and uh, you know, one of the human rights activists that I was, you know, working with, um, came to the hotel, and she she spoke to the, um, to the uh, security guys, the the you know the valet. Uh, guy and the security guy in front of the building and she said did you see who put this banner up these banners up and um and the two men said yeah it was the police they came here at one in the morning and put these banners up um and the security guy said we thought it was just a banner for the election we we didn't even look at it but uh and by the way the police department uh is um, is not just any police department. So first of all, it's part of the national police, and this specific division of the police is in charge of investigating organized crime, which is you know the equivalent of their FBI. And so you know, yeah, that's the political police uh, in their country. That's that was hanging their those banners, which. Uh, you know, made me even, you know, more concerned. I, you know, I thought, oh, maybe this is just 
like some right wing nuts. But no, this was this was the government um, that put those up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty frightening notion. I mean, a government uh, state sanctioned uh, intimidation campaign. And and I'm also wondering, Joe, about uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Philippines and how Washington impacts politics inside uh, of the Philippines, because I feel like, you know, the history between those two countries stretches back at least to 1898 in in the period that we in the United States are told is called the uh, uh, Spanish American. War, And so uh, how do you see uh, the relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines government impacting things uh, right now and possibly impacting this upcoming election? Well, Sean, you know, I, I thought, you know, I, I listened to you, your, your program, uh, you two. I listen to you, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, you're one of the best uh, sources of of, you know, news and perspective. Um, on the internet, and so I, I thank you for for your for your role in educating in in doing political education for our movement. Um, but I've heard you talk on many occasions about the United States pivot to Asia, um, as it was called, you know, under the Obama administration, and you know what is shaping up to be, you know, which looks like not currently it's a cold war on China, but. You know, the military planners are pushing the envelope. Um, and, and I believe personally that they are preparing for an actual war on China. Well, let's remember the last two, the last three U.S. major wars in the Pacific, the Second World War, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And what role did the Philippines have in all of those wars the Philippines was like a an, an island, a group of islands that were an aircraft carrier um, for you know for American bombers, and uh, and 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 so you know for the for the Pentagon and for the ruling you know junta in our country, the Philippines is an essential asset, um, and that's why uh, the U.S. provides them several hundred million dollars annually in military aid and uh and the biden administration just pushed through the um the 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 sale i think of two and a half billion dollars including f-16 fighter jets now the the philippines hasn't had uh, a war with anyone uh, since they, you know, were conquered by the Japanese in World War II, what do they need fighter jets for? Um, and uh, you know, it's pretty apparent to, to me that you know, the, the as the U.S. prepares for its war on China, that they're queuing up the Philippines to be, uh, you know, to be a junior partner uh, in addition to being, you know, a land-based aircraft carrier for them so they're so they're all behind whichever government is in office in manila and and that's why you know you you don't you know you don't see on the on on the news here on a regular basis um uh you know duterte being you know criticized uh for his many atrocities i mean there's some news here about you know the deaths of the 
um, you know, drug users or alleged drug users, uh, you know, mostly poor people. And then, of course, there was the uh, the award last year of the Nobel Peace Prize to Maria Ressa, who's a journalist um, that <clears throat> uh, is very high profile, and she was working for CNN. So, you know, and you know, Jackie and and Sean, you know the role that CNN has for U.S. imperialism. So, uh, so that you know, you know, with in the case of that journalist, you know, the the U.S. responded um, because they saw Duterte as like that was a bridge too far for them going after a U.S. allied journalist. But, um, but yeah, the 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 Philippines is seen as a U.S. asset in their plans for trying to take back, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the take back the Western Pacific. Definitely. Well, we appreciate your analysis, Joe, and definitely thank you for your support of the show. But we're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how different progressive grassroots groups are orienting towards our domestic and international political moment. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Brandon Walker, community coordinator with the Ujima People's Progress Party in Maryland. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? Doing well, Brandon, doing well. And I know that the Ujima People's Progress Party there in Maryland is set to have their uh, state conference here soon in a couple of days. And I'm just curious, you know, what are the sorts of things that uh, you all will be discussing? How are you all considering um, the political landscape, if you will, I think both domestically and internationally, as these things really stand to impact a poor working and oppressed people, both in the United, uh, in Maryland, in the United States, uh, and indeed around the world, and uh, generally, I'm just considering how you know you all, as a grassroots group, are sort of posturing towards uh, uh, everything happening right now. Thank you again, Sean, for that well-said question. I definitely appreciate you asking. So, what I've heard, and, and you're asking, is how we're using the conference to be able to engage the masses and raise the political consciousness. I say in many ways, much of the work is outside of the conference, but the conference is nothing more but just a medium to reach out to folks in different parts of the state and to not be galvanized, or should I say galvanized forces inside of just one particular area in the state or local communities. But we also use, I would say, a plethora of methods, if I'm using the correct term, anywhere from fight back programs to weekly, bi-weekly political education, organizing around Know Your Rights training and mutual aid as well. And at the conference, to kind of crystallize your question as well, we use our community connection, our statewide connections 
regional, national, and international connections to local groups that speak about the anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, anti-racism, and anti-sexism platform that we have as a Eugene the People's Progress Party organizer and paid dues member. And as a part of that 11-point platform, we try to tie out ideas and theories about the U.S. settler colonial state and as well as how it affects people from our statewide approach, regional, national, and international, onto the conference and beyond. Yeah, and it's, you know, that international connection to the local, I think, that is very frequently missing or hit or miss when we talk about grassroots uh, organizing for political power in the U.S. So how uh, does Ujima see being able to tie, say, the current issues regarding the conflict in Ukraine and the uh, ignored ongoing issues of U.S. militarism around the world to working class and poor people's issues in Maryland uh, through this uh, state conference? Yes, comrade. So to begin to answer that question or to delve into it, a lot of it ties around class struggle that I believe and that we believe is probably the analysis that had to be approach because when we're talking about white supremacy and we're talking about racism, we kind of, we have to include the class struggle inside of it because we understand that racism is capitalism's manufactured product. So when we're having conversations with the lumping proletarian, the folks who are everyday working class people, everyone in my community and beyond Baltimore to be able to speak on to the other 23 counties in Maryland, we're looking to have a genuine relationship or if not a common concept on exactly how do we see what's happening in Ukraine and the world over to be able to highlight contradictions on what's happening in Haiti as far as the continuing struggle to be able to be denied their liberation and as well as the Cuban blockade and everything else that goes on from Venezuela and, and the world over into a common synopsis or not an analysis on exactly how poor and working class people are treated under racism and capitalism inside the, you know, settler colonial U.S. states and how that global machine of criminal capitalism and imperialism correlates to what's happening in Africa, dealing with AFRICOM and many of the bases where we're seeing how colonialism and neocolonialism with shadow and puppet governments had just as much effect on African people and poor and working class people who are oppressed under the thumb imperialism in places all over the world and continents, including here inside the U.S. Yeah, and Brandon, I was hoping you could say more about what these conversations are like specifically um, on the point of uh, imperialism and, and the impact that imperialism has on poor working and oppressed people right here in the U.S. Because on the one hand, I feel like people in the U.S. receive messages like, you know, what's happening in Ukraine 
uh, the uh, uh, blockade of Cuba for 60 some odd years. All of these uh, different issues um, happening internationally that are either directly or indirectly uh, have the involvement of the United States. It, it feels like something that's happening a million miles away on the one hand. And, you know, with uh, poor and working folks, most times just uh, uh, putting so much of their energy and resources into just surviving that it seems disconnected. And then also, you know, specifically for talking about the, the war in Ukraine, I think that there's a uh, there's a, a sentiment amongst uh, black people specifically in the United States that, well, basically, this is just a, uh, a, a spat or a dust up or dispute between two white countries that really has no uh, broader implications for the rest of us and certainly not for black folks here in the U.S. And so I'm just curious, you know, what these conversations about uh, imperialism look like, because I think it's important. And also because I feel like a lot of organizations who don't necessarily have um, imperialism as um, sort of a a plank, if you will, of their program uh, simply aren't having, which I think, you know, really constitutes a kind of missed opportunity here. Yes, comrade. So we see it, and as I see it, as the war in Ukraine and how to have that conversation in a layman's terms, because we shouldn't expect everyone to have the same understanding, but we also can see the same things from a different view. It's more of a common concept or a term that I've like coined lately and I'm still toying with is the cycles of contradictions where we're talking about taxes, we're talking about budgets, we talk about resources where for a poor and working class African person in the state of Maryland inside of Baltimore City, that conversation for me to another person as well who are akin to it would, would be introduced in a, in, in a theme of ideas of being able to understand how propaganda works and how we can frame your view on what is happening in Ukraine while it is also dismissing the ideas of what's happening to you in the U.S., inside your city and state, and as well as other places where African people are around the world. And those conversations tend to get, you know, a little more heated, if not reactionary. And when you're using, you know, the, the dialogue or the dialectics of ideas to introduce, to be able to speak about the cycles of contradiction, I try, me personally, I try to speak with other comrades and other people of the community and laypersons, I'd say, is that, you know, no matter where you are, you are oppressed. And if we can understand that, that can be a beginning to open up, but we also have to slowly begin to peel the veil back from our eyes and as well as other eyes about that conversation of imperialism as it relates to Ukraine, where what is happening inside of that country is nothing more but a common global interest that is no different than what's going on inside of the U.S. with the laypersons that I'm speaking with in general. So those contradictions that work in layer from everywhere on how we're not, how we're been, being denied the basic life qualities of human rights, how other places around the world, even inside the Ukraine, shouldn't be looked at because no one lives to wake up and have bombs dropped on them. No one wants to raise their children in any area that is being war-torn or invaded in the concept of militarism can also be connected to local policing on how budgets work as I initially started into this dialogue about that question onto how police departments get military weapons through 1033 programs that's 
pretty much these weapons that come off of battlefields where they're invading countries and nations where poor working class folks are ultimately the first victim to suffer and the last people that are a part of the conversation and reparatory justice to be able to receive or be able to be seen as human once all these atrocities are committed. So I say outside of the cycles of contradiction, which I could go on and on about, but I digress, we have to focus on the propaganda tool and how the media can often become the enemy of the people by how it frames the concept of, look at what's happening here in Ukraine. Everyone say, pray for Ukraine, but we're not talking about the vested interests of the U.S. that oppress people in Ukraine, that oppress African people in the U.S. and the world over to be able to have that conversation with one another that we must look at the factors at play. Where do the bombs come from? Where do the bullets come from? Where do the uniforms come from? Even down to the boots, shoestrings, and threading on the uniforms come from. And then we'll be able to see that it is our tax dollars, or should I say the money stolen through our tax dollars and labor to oppress us here and the world over. And we can have that conversation around ideas through cyclical contradictions about how we're affected in Ukraine, how we're affected in the world over and at home as well, or in the U.S. as well. Yeah. And, you know, earlier in our conversation, Brandon, you 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 mentioned that most of the work will be happening um, outside of this conference and uh, uh, those sorts of things. And I actually think that's an important uh, sort of attitude to have because I feel like an issue that I see a lot in uh, sort of popular movement culture, if we can call it that, because I see this trend of people who on the one hand will say that we have to, quote, meet people where they are, but then will come with, you know, theories, attitudes, strategies and tactics that effectively um, keep people where they're at. And uh, to me, it, it stems from, frankly, a lack of, of confidence in poor working and oppressed people to both understand these deep concepts that you're putting forth and a lack of confidence in their uh, uh, ability to actually be able to uh, organize uh, around their own issues. You know what I mean? And I feel like I definitely feel like it's a it's a class issue in uh, uh, the broadest sense. But, you know, how do you sort of see this uh, uh, outside work, this kind of uh, deep organizing within these communities and really being in relationship with people? people. And how important is that? Uh, not only to the work you all do at Ujima, but also just in, in general, in terms of building the kind of a, a mass movement of poor working and oppressed people that is needed to resolve and critically address, you know, this uh, cycle of contradictions that uh, we've been speaking about today. Yes. It, it becomes more and more often than not, as you speak about of understanding what this class struggle looked like, and it's all relevant to you, the, the first, you know, two questions and conversations that w w we've engaged in about who fights the war. It's going to be poor and working class people that they put on the line and who fights these struggles at home to be able to have a livable wage and a demand to a better, better quality or quality life. So outside of the conference, when we're talking about things of militarism, capitalism, and how it all affects us on a local basis, it can start from just an example of education where if we're sending our kids to HBCUs or colleges for that matter, we can be assured that just as much as the community we come from that's overburdened with more polices and less homes, 
into a HBCU where they're seeing recruitment offices for, you know, militaries, for the Army and all these other narratives that says that we must protect the rights and the ideas of American values, that class struggle that is incumbent upon us to be able to speak to one another is to say that we're not going to see that at Harvard. We're not going to see that at any Ivy League or white college or any pretty much high-paying or cash-yielding institution of education that many Africans, whether they attend by choice or just through, you know, sheer indoctrination, they're not going to be exposed to it. So if we have that understanding to talk to one another about what class struggle looks like, we also have a politics of life and death. So that conversation is near and dear outside of the conference. We're looking at many opportunities on how do we engage one another around the concepts of mutual aid or how do we be able to provide, you know, healthcare needs just at that moment and not just taking a conversation of what you're saying, meeting people where they at, but rather standing where we are and moving forward together as opposed to just being a paternalistic or any kind of approach that many organizations think is solving the problem. But all it is is doing is pacifying the struggle because we want to do this together because we are all oppressed together. We are all under the same thumb of oppression together. So to take that approach and to look at that class struggle question outside of the conference of the work of Eugenia and many other, you know, independent political organizations are doing inside the community, political education is just as important as well as being able to address the dynamics of class struggle, the cycles of contradiction that many of us find ourselves in as unwilling participants inside of this empire. So I know for sure that that's an abstract idea. I, I know but I'm thinking the best way to really, you know, attack that or at least speak to it in a way that many of us can understand is sometimes we have to see ourselves in more of a human form and to know that many of us may not be introduced to what is happening to us or even have an orientation on what class and politics is. So we have to start somewhere with just a conversation over over dinner, over food, at a basketball game, wherever we can. So we could be able to move together as a conscious basing unit and then work towards the independent political action as opposed to just meeting people where they at. Just as you said, it's such a vague term to address the contradictions at the base level to get into the class struggles inside the cycle of contradictions. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Brandon, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. All our allies, accomplices, and comrades that y'all can reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C. by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio slash by underscore any underscore means. You can catch our shows on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And we're streaming live on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, folks, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And, uh, you know, Jackie, I was just looking at a recent uh, article that was published on Black Agenda Report by friend of the show, uh, Margaret Kimberly, entitled The Ukraine Crisis Can't Save Biden. Mm. And I think this is uh, an important sort of thing to, to note because, I mean, it really does seem like Joe Biden wants to try to use the war in Ukraine to both bolster uh, Democrat support in the midterms and also into years for the next election. But it, you know, just doesn't really seem to be panning out that way. And uh, I wanted to read just a little bit of this where uh, Margaret says, quote, while there may not be mass rejection of the Ukraine narrative, there is certainly a mass rejection of Biden himself. The latest opinion poll shows him with a very low 33 percent approval rating. The average person may not be well-versed in the history of U.S. policy towards Russia, but they know when things don't add up, and they know that the president is not a well-man. Rambling, incoherent speeches punctuated by shouts of war criminal and genocide don't cut it when working people can barely afford to put gas in the tank. We are left with a mass gaslighting effort that has created the desired effect of generating fear and hatred towards Russia, but that hasn't increased satisfaction about the country's direction. Biden's actions aren't very surprising. He was the Ukraine point person after the Barack Obama coup in 2014. He was always one of the most hawkish Democrats and came into the presidency with Anthony Blinken, Victoria Nuland, and the same cast of characters who first violated Ukraine's sovereignty. He hoped to instigate Russia and kill the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and sanction Russia. He didn't expect the full incursion that he spent months saying would happen. Now he is hoisted on his own petard trying to bully other nations into condemning Russia when it isn't in their interest to do so and causing worldwide suffering in a futile effort to destroy Russia's economy. 
Sanctions against Russia have increased fuel prices all over the world. Disruption in wheat production will reduce Ukraine's harvest and decrease supplies in places that had no connection with this ginned-up conflict. The anti-Russian propaganda is working, but the pro-Biden effort is not. Hence the public disapproval. And see, what 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 Margaret Kimberly does there sort of it, it helped me thread the needle and make a connection that I've been trying to make in sort of in my head, but couldn't really articulate it well. And it's the fact that although I think it's generally true that the American people are are sick of war and are weary of war, I tend to believe that that's generally true. But it's also obviously true, as Margaret Kimberly points out, that because of this incessant and aggressive propaganda, that they're fully bought into the Washington line as it pater- as it uh, concerns Ukraine. But that does not equal uh, uh, an increase of approval by the American people towards Joe Biden. And why is that? Because. They continue to see their material conditions deteriorate and worsen under a president who was sworn to be their savior. Right. Like we, we can never we can never forget that. You know, that's what the uh, uh, Democrats were pushing with Biden. It's what they were pushing with Clinton. That's how they justify, you know, scuttling a popular progressive candidate and Bernie Sanders, not once, but twice to the point where, you know, during the last election, they they had to the Democrats had to swell the field with just an absolute clown car of uh, different people who were basically different shades of being an anti Bernie. That's how far they went before, you know, a vomiting Biden back up. When nobody wanted him, I don't know anybody that missed Joe Biden and and just wanted him to be president because he was just so fire as vice president. And, you know, they conveniently forget the several times that he's, you know, tried to run for president in the past and was not successful. Right. And uh, and all of that, you know, connects to the fact that why why would this war in Ukraine be something that the American people get behind to the extent of increasing their positive feelings towards Biden when they don't, they don't see any positive impact from this one way or the other prices of food, prices of gas, all these sorts of things uh, emanating out of this, but they'd be hard pressed to point to a lot of, you know, good things that have happened uh, in the time since uh, Joe Biden has been president and whatever positive things they you may be able to legitimately point to it obviously is not to the scale scope and depth that is necessary to really shift political opinion and so i just think that uh u.s imperialism finds itself in a precarious situation where it's on the decline it it, it appears to be aware of the decline but can't seem to do anything to right the ship as it were. And why? Because we are living in the moment that is the logical conclusion of the neoliberal program, right? Things have uh, uh, reached a point where people are continuing to see their basic needs completely cast aside, ignored, 
lip service paid to it, but very little oomph put behind it. And then they see right wingers inside the Democrat Party scuttle things like the Build Back Better plan and things like that. But yet and still, because you're you're sending, excuse me, because you're stealing our money Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to support this war just to keep it going. It at this point, it doesn't seem likely for Ukraine to really have a kind of military victory over Russia at this point. Now, the Western media is constantly, you know, talking about, you know, Russian defeats and drawbacks and how they've, uh, you know, according to them, been put on the back foot and things like that. It can be hard to tell um, a lot when you talk about the the fog of war. But I mean, honestly, and, and I also feel like Joe Biden has said as much that uh, the U.S. is prepared to, you know, continue their support and by extension, um, sort of elongating this this whole conflict and making it go on for longer, which, of course, will only increase the suffering of the uh, uh, American people. And as such, you know, I don't think the American people, matter of fact, I'm fairly certain the American people are not making a kind of direct correlation between imperialism, which is not just a set of policies. It's an all-encompassing system, which has at its heart Um, monopoly capitalism, right? Uh, They're not making a direct connection between imperialism and the working class struggle here in the United States. But it's clear that on some, that on some level, people are clearly not satisfied with what they've seen from the Joe Biden administration up until this point. And as such, I, I think we could very well be looking at a stage being set for a real surge of Trumpist right-wing reactionary uh, uh, forces that are clearly preparing to make a real play both this year and in two years. I think that's absolutely true. And, and you know, if you think about it, I, I, I struggled myself, Sean, to think about why people seized on this, this you know, anti-Putin Russia is the bad guy, yay, yay. And and it's not even yay, yay, Ukraine in this war, right? It's really, you know, Russia must be stopped. And and aside from the the six years of Russiagate that was just forced on people 24-7 on all the cable news outlets, it really didn't, it, it really didn't make any sense why people were so bought into What's going on in Ukraine? And and then even when I factor in the fact that, all right, this is, you know, we live in a very white supremacist uh, settler colonial uh, nation. And of course, that the specter of of poor, uh, uh, mostly white people being at the at, at the center of uh, a, a war. That's, you know, emotionally painful for some people who didn't care about all the black and brown and, uh, you know, other indigenous and other folks, Latin folks uh, who who have been subjected to the exact same thing that's going on in Ukraine that the U.S. and the EU and NATO did. I, I really struggle to find any logical material reason for people to be as invested in hating Russia as they are. And, and I realize that, honestly, Sean, I think it comes down to how this country is indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. We are indoctrinated to look at everything from, first of all, a, an, an American perspective, 
But we're also indoctrinated to look at world events from a uniquely Hollywood created good mm. guy, bad guy, Marvel comics. And don't get me don't get me wrong. I love me some Marvel me comics and some Marvel movies. But we literally think everything is a Marvel movie. And and so people are looking at, you know, that they're making uh, 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 Putin to be the foil. And they're cheering for, you know, this plucky underdog Ukraine as if the, the, the Kiev army in Ukraine hadn't waged a civil war against ethnic Russians for eight years right, yeah. and committed massive war crimes, rapes, ethnic cleansing, all kinds of stuff, massacres. But now people, people have been given a foil. They've been given a heel for those of you wrestling fans like we are. <laughs> Putin is the heel. Russia's the foil and they need to be cheered against. And honestly, I think, Sean, that it gives people in this country an emotional boost. It it gives them some type of weird serotonin kind of whatever that takes the place for, I guess, the security that we would have if we did have a, a, a government or politicians who were fighting for health care. Right. Who were fighting for. I mean, can you imagine how excited people would be if Biden came out one day in the next week or two and announced, you know what? I'm going to stop messing around, folks. I am just going to cancel student loan debt. All of it gone. We've been kicking the can down the road. Clearly, we can afford not to have you pay it because none of those companies want to. Let's just do away with it. Let's, Let's just hit the reset button. Let me do this for you. Do you do you know how excited people would be for that? Very. Joe Biden would win the next election in a landslide if he were literally in a wheelchair and not able to string together a coherent set of sentences. <laughs> I really believe that's true because that's how much material pain people are in. Joe Biden at any point could come out and do just one of the things people were supporting Bernie Sanders' campaign to do, that the Democrats just, you know, squashed all that like a bug, <laughs> you know. Biden could easily come out and, and say, okay, fine. I'm not a socialist, but I'll put a cap on rents. I'll, I will issue an executive order that will put a cap on rents. And, and if we get sued, we, go, we get sued, but we go to court and we will fight for the American people. All he would have to do is make an effort and he'd win. And anybody else who would continue in that uh, in in that 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 line of of politicking that he would advance in his place, they'd win, too. But they're not going to do that. They're never going to do that because, number one, they don't have to. Mm. (laughs) You know, all, all this stuff about these folks. We said it when the election was called. Abdus and I were in Malcolm X Park at the Black is Back Coalition Day annual Black People's March on the White House. And they called the election and folks were in the park and they were doing yoga. They were having their little yoga classes and we're out there, you know, getting ready to angry black people marching on the White House. And, you know, and then all of a sudden everybody's there's horns honking and people are hugging and they stop doing their downward dogs and they're jumping up and down. The child and, pose. Yeah. And, you know, we're just looking at each other like, oh, well, they must have called the election. He must have, you know, quote unquote, won. And, and we said then 
All these people talking about if we elect Joseph Biden, we have to push him to the left to get people the things that Sanders campaigned on that people wanted. We have to, we're going to push Biden to the left. We just have to get him elected. My husband and I, and we were with uh, Netta Freeman, I think. We were just sitting there. We were looking at each other like, these people ain't pushing nobody nowhere. Right. <laughs> they, they are too excited about this man winning. So, so when Biden and the Democratic Party saw that nobody held them to account for destroying uh, a viable candidacy in Bernie Sanders, crushing the people's voice, when nobody held the Democratic Party to account for going to court and suing to keep the Green Party off of ballots in two states, when nobody called the, the, the Democrats to account for scuttling the campaign of uh, Nina Turner, mm-hmm. for supporting, uh, uh, what's her name? Chantel uh, Brown. Chantel Brown. Uh, n- nobody called the Democratic Party to account for any of the things, none of the broken promises from the Biden campaign. The Democrats know they don't have to do anything that the people want and need because people have not held up their end of the bargain. Ain't nobody pushed Biden to the left to do nothing. So he can sit here and and say whatever he wants to say about Vladimir Putin, because all people are going to get out of this presidency is this this empty serotonin, whatever it is they're getting from frothing at the mouth anger at Russia. While the Democrats continue to benefit, profit from this war, and they are through the, you know, the defense contractors and the Republicans are doing the same thing. So when they lose the House and the Senate in the midterms, that's almost a certainty. Then the Democrats are going to put out the clarion call. Oh, my God, you've got to vote for whatever Democratic candidate it is because you don't want. Trump or the Republicans to, you know, this this Trumpist wave that is coming. And it's not going to be enough because, Sean, serotonin, that serotonin high does not last a long time. No, no, it doesn't. And, you know, I was out there the day that um the election was called to. I, I was going out there periodically because people got to remember this was during that weird period when the election wasn't called yet. Which is not what we're used to in the U.S. We're basically used to it being called like, you know, the night of. But it like took a couple of days or whatever. You know what I mean? And so (laughs) I actually remember there being like to me, I think like a lot of um, different organized groups locally maybe didn't really know what to do. Because it can be hard to know what to do when you're just in like this weird holding pattern. And there was like this mass celebration. I literally saw people popping bottles of champagne, doing the electric slide. Oh man, it was wild, right? But it's just so funny because that that celebration wasn't for Biden. They were not happy that Joe Biden was president of the United States. They were happy that Donald Trump was no longer the president of the United States, right? And which I can understand, Donald Trump, an unrepentant Reactionary, swaggering bigot, reality television star, World Wrestling Entertainment Hall of Famer, and it's quote unquote entertainment wing, even though there's no physical Hall of Fame. I don't know how it can have a wing, but that's, you know, you have to get into the mind of Vincent Kennedy McMahon to understand that, right? But see, this is the trick bag that they always put us in because we're supposed to be happy that they quote unquote saved us 
from the boogeyman of the day, who is, of course, objectively bad. But since you're bringing this sort of same old rehashed, you know, neoliberal, a democratic centrist uh, uh, line, which, you know, I think there's a good bit of overlap with uh, the Trump program, just in a much more uh, uh, polite package. I mean, you could argue that in, in some ways, uh, uh, particularly in terms of foreign policy, um, uh, Biden is to the right of Donald Trump. I just think that's objectively true. I mean, Joe Biden on the campaign trail and in the debates, he was going harder from the cop for the cops than Trump. And it's, it's just the strangest uh, a sort of tact in the, in the midst of a mass uprising against racist police terror. But who are we talking about? We're talking about Joe Biden, one of the architects of the mass incarceration state, who we know for a fact palled around with these racist segregationists and was like proud of that out of some sick, twisted sense of bipartisanship, right? So we know uh, his history coming into this. And like you say, that little, that little jolt of uh, adrenaline or whatever that people may have felt that day or that week, I mean, as times roll on and there's just one broken promise after another, like that just, at a certain point, it's just not enough. And I'm going to keep it real. Because every four years, every time there's a presidential election in the United States, it's always the same conversation. Is that like, well, we got to support the Democrat because we don't want the Republicans in there, even though we know the Democrats aren't quote unquote perfect. People love talking about perfection. You know, don't make uh, perfection the enemy of the good or whatever the saying is, which is funny to me because to say that implies that the Democrats are in fact good. And I, I just don't agree that they are from the basis of what their policies mean materially and concretely for the masses of poor working and oppressed people. But then you have this course of people that go, look, I agree. I am a progressive, quote unquote. I don't really like Biden or Clinton or whoever the, 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 the centrist sort of establishment candidate is this time around. I would prefer a more left candidate, but this is what we got to work with. So we have to get them in office because it will be, quote unquote, easier to struggle with them. And we can, you know, supposedly push them left. How? <laughs> How are you going to do that? There is no sort of uh, institutional mechanism through which you can actually hold the president of the United States accountable. That's on purpose, right? From the very beginning of the roots of the United States, it was understood that real democracy would be a threat to the, the, the sort of burgeoning ruling class because the wealthy people of this country then knew there was more uh, poor folks than them. Even just the poor white men Right. Even uh, there had to be a process there because uh, uh, to where political power stayed in the hands of the wealthy landed white men. And then the poor white folks become almost like a, a buffer between the sort of uh, a burgeoning bourgeoisie and the masses of black people and indigenous and, and Chinese immigrants and all these other groups that would uh, uh, come and be exploited in, in a number of ways to help build this country. You know what I mean? So you're talking about pushing the left. And I'm just going to be honest. I don't even think I don't even think they believe that. that I, I think that's true. I, I think you're right on that. I, I think that's just something they say. Yeah. Because they're caught in the moment. 
it's like it's like oh I've been called out yeah. <laughs> you know they they realize that that I'm you know just playing this game and and now how do I answer for the fact that yes I know this person that I'm telling you to vote for is garbage mm-hmm. what do I say oh oh I know well we can push them left no one ain't gonna do nothing. No one ain't gonna bust a great because traditionally the the gains that people have made in the United States, whether we're talking about during the civil rights movement or the Vietnam War, you know, the weekend unemployment insurance, all of the gains that poor working people have made in this country were never given out of the kindness of the heart of the ruling class. The people struggled for them. But these same folks talking about pushing Biden left or pushing Kamala Harris left, they won't even do that. They're not interested in any sort of a real mass struggle. I don't know if they can, like, tweet Biden to the left or what, right? You you feel me? But, you know, these are the same people that were holding signs like, you know, if Hillary were president, we'd be at brunch right now. These are the kinds of, like, liberal, petty bourgeois sort of uh, uh, sentiments and ways of thinking that, you know, uh, people really get into when we discuss this whole issue. And I'm, you know, I don't I don't mean to sound too cynical, but it's just it, I mean, it's, it's just annoying to frankly to to sort of uh, uh, see it. But, you know, what always, you know, keeps me helpful, excuse me, what keeps me hopeful is that, you know, I know I know very well, as I'm sure a lot of people do that listen to this show or that may generally hold our politics. We know very well who about it and who's not. We know who's serious, who's not. We know that when it comes right down to it, who's going to be really engaged in a struggle for these things and who, and who is it? And so it's always a, a, a better use of time to really think about, well, how can we develop and grow and organize amongst the folks who are serious, the folks who really have some skin in the game? If your only concern throughout the week is where am I going to get a mimosa on Saturday or Sunday for brunch, then maybe you'd feel like you don't have that much skin in the game or that much to lose. But that's just not the case for millions of people in this country, at least 140 million living at or below the poverty line. But I want to talk more about this on the other side of our first break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Mrs. Jackie Lukeman, one half of Lukeman Nation. And, you know, one thing that we've been touching on quite a bit here, Jackie, although not in depth, really, uh, I don't think in certain ways, in terms of this inflexible, very binary uh, way that the war in Ukraine is being framed, analyzed and discussed in the mainstream media. 
And that's something that I'm sure people have heard me mention before, this notion of Russia bad, Ukraine good. And, you know, uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is, I, I would argue that he's almost being made into like a heroic figure. You mentioned this a little earlier, Jackie, and sort of describing how Ukraine being poised um, or positioned against uh, Russia, you know, as, as a scrappy underdog. And of course, Russia is a, a physically massive country and a geostrategically important country. That's why the U.S. is so concerned with um, containing it. And, and to be frank, it's mostly concerned with just out and out regime change uh, above everything else. And if that means um, engaging in nuclear war to achieve that, then I think Washington is very uh, uh, willing to do that. But, you know, what, what keeps getting left out are the issues and abuses of the Zelensky government. And we've noted before, as others are, you know, within the realm of alternative media, you don't hear this dealt with honestly in the mainstream media. <laughs> Excuse me. First of all, the fact that there was a coup in 2014 that was backed by the United States that, you know, has its roots in protest where there were people of different political stripes there. But with the entree of these ultranationalist neo-Nazi elements, like the Azov Battalion, like the right sector, like the Zvoboda Party, led by Oleg Tannenbach and people like this, right? Um, that the character of the whole situation changed and these elements were then integrated into aspects of the military, and the police becoming a kind of decisive minority within the politics of Ukraine. So in the time since the war, we've seen um, Volodymyr Zelensky ban 11 opposition parties. I should note that since 2014, uh, communist parties and communist iconographies and Soviet iconography banned in Ukraine because Nazis hate communists, right? Uh, because of the pole of opposite of, of their own ideology, which, which I don't think we, we should forget. All of those things. When you talk about suppression, you know, I, I noted the other day about, uh, you know, Zelensky was on this uh, video call. Oh, I forget what body it was, but it was with some governing body inside Europe and then brought on um, uh, a neo-Nazi of Greek origin to sort of give his... Uh, spiel, if you will, about what's happening. And so, and people may remember that in, in the early days, I would say the first couple of weeks of the Ukraine war, it seemed like every time you saw a photo published of Ukraine troops, you could find some Nazi insignia or symbol somewhere on their uniform yep. or something. Either you saw like the Azov logo with like the two little, almost like lightning bolts or uh, or the Black Sun, mm -hmm. or the Wolf's Angel, or the one, I forget its name, but it's like a skull with the military helmet on. You could find that in, in, in what felt like just about every picture. I mean, not to mention the fact that here in the U.S., you had people running these news segments showing the Azov Battalion, you know, teaching old ladies to shoot. And we were supposed to, like, find that adorable. Right. And you could clearly see, you know, the, these Azov patches on their arms and, and things like that. And so th this is completely 
covered up, frankly, by the mainstream media. And with the obvious goal of swaying the opinion of the American people to support the U.S. government in this proxy war against Russia using Ukraine. Now, my friends, what we're talking about is war. There is going to be death, bloodshed, and destruction from all parties involved. All parties involved are going to seek to advance their narrative. This is what we call the fog of war. And the fog of war spreads rapidly and in all directions. But if you were to believe the coverage of the mainstream media in the West, then the only party, the only aspect of this issue, of this conflict that's done anything wrong is Russia as a whole, the Russian government, and in particular, Vladimir Putin as an individual. As if Russia is in this war all by itself. And as if there isn't any broader context to the war in Ukraine. And here again, raising the fact that there is a broader context in the poisonous environment in the United States right now, to even raise the fact that there is relevant context is perceived as support or justification of the uh, invasion. And so this is why the propaganda is so necessary. This is why information war is so crucial to the project of uh, U.S. imperialism because they simply would not be able to go through with a lot of the things that the U.S. does if it was not able to manufacture consent and invent reality and to present a version of events and a version of history to the American people, uh, uh, to present a version of it that actually shows the complexity and the nuance of what's happening so that the American people can make an intelligent, informed decision. The U.S. government and the mainstream media is robbing active, active tense. They are robbing tense. the American present tense. Thank you, Jackie. I ain't no linguist. But <laughs> I just talk kind of good. But they are actively robbing the American people of the ability to be well-informed and to be able to make their own decision and make their own informed analysis of what's happening. But then we'll accuse Sputnik or other alternative media platforms of sowing, quote, war propaganda. I defy anybody to, uh, you know, sh show me uh, uh, where by any means necessary, has not been consistently anti-war and anti-imperialist for the entirety of its existence. Can Rachel Maddow say that? Oh, my God, no. Can uh, Anderson Cooper or Don Lemon mm. say that? You know what I mean? And so it, it's, it's, it's this whole question of power and the ability to define reality that is really uh, the, uh, uh, sort of framing and shaping people's thinking and people's consciousness around this Jackie. And I think it just proves that we're correct when we talk about the importance of uh, proper political education in the process of our organizing. I mean, that's absolutely true. And I, and I recognize, I, I guess 
I, I have, and, 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 I, and I am going to blame my trip to Venezuela on this because I honestly came back from Venezuela, like not tolerant of anybody's foolishness. Like, no, this is way too serious for us to continue to have these ridiculous, uh, you know, petty internal kind of things because, you know, there are people in this world that have literally defeated U.S. imperialism mm-hmm. and are still trying to maintain that victory. Mm-hmm. And they would have an easier time of doing it if there were more of us inside the imperial core fighting on the inside, weakening the empire from the inside. But we are so deeply, deeply uh, 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 propagandized and misinformed that we don't even understand the basic concepts of what is imperialism and what nation is imperialist and what nation is not. Because you got people who who have all of this vitriol for Russia, Putin in particular. It's more about Putin than it is about Russia for people, I'm convinced. But people who say things, well, Russia is imperialist. And, and, you know, this is why I'm opposed to this, because Russia is invading Ukraine to try to reestablish the Soviet empire. They're trying to exercise their imperialist might. It, 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 it reflects a basic misunderstanding of what imperialism actually is. Right. And, and I, I don't think that is a, a reflection of the lack of the lack of adequate political uh, education because we out here. Uh-huh. You, you know, I, I really do think that, I again, I really do think it's the effect of Hollywood and how much we just love our entertainment over actually learning history because you got, you know, most of the people in this country still believing that the U.S. won World War II mm-hmm. when it was, in fact, the Soviet Red Army right. <laughs> that did that. So you've got people thinking that Putin is trying to reestablish the Soviet Union uh, by invading Ukraine, not understanding that Russia is not only not anything close to pre-World War II Soviet Union, but Russia is an imperialist. Uh, they, the materially, they do not possess the might, the strength, the diplomatic or military or economic anything to be an imperialist nation. Not in the sense where we're looking at what the United States does by uh, influencing political uh, 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 realities in other countries around the world, if they don't use NATO, then they use uh, diplomatic bullying or they just coup people. And they can do this in two and three countries at the same time. Russia has, doesn't have the GDP that, that fits into the definition of an imperialist nation. Russia doesn't have the diplomatic uh, influence over any of its neighbor countries, not even the former Warsaw Pact countries, because most of them are members of NATO now. They, they don't have the kind of influence in their own region that they used to have. This does not mean that Russia is not a military superpower. Of course they are. They have nuclear weapons and they have a big old military, but they're not imperialist. They export more goods you know, so it, it is a, it is a basic misunderstanding of what imperialism is that leads people to believe that when we say the problem in this conflict was started by the imperialist power in the world, the U.S., the EU, their allies, their lapdogs, and NATO, their armed gang of thugs, 
it is easier for people to say, well, that makes no sense. Russia is really the problem because they have a, a material lack of understanding of what imperialism even is. And that is absolutely by design, you know? Yeah, totally. And I mean, my whole thing when people uh, talk about, you know, uh, uh, Russia, you know, being imperialist, and I'm like, well, if Russia is an imperialist country, then how could it be, for instance, kicked out of the SWIFT system so easily? Who can any country or collection of countries kick the U.S. out of anything? You know what I'm saying? Like the, like these major um, uh, uh, international economic bodies like the IMF and the World Bank where the U.S. holds so much power and that in some cases often act uh, like, you know, uh, vectors or emissaries uh, of U.S. foreign policy. Can anyone kick the U.S. Uh, either out from these organizations or remove their influence from organizations like this? No. No. And, you know, that's just one metric, but I think people get confused because they see Russia as this geographically large country uh, that has these sort of important relationships, both regionally and around the world because of things like oil and wheat and military support and, and things like that. And they say, oh, and then to top it all off, um, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. So aren't these the earmarks of an imperialist country? And I just think that that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what imperialism is. And I swear, uh, the older I get, the more I realize that imperialism really is sort of the core contradiction and that so much of how people understand uh, politics, both domestically and internationally, a lot of times can be boiled down to their understanding of imperialism or whether or not they even consider it, you know, because I think that this is what gives us a more balanced and, and accurate notion of how uh, things really operate between different powers, different governments, different countries on the earth and why they operate the way that they do. And this, this point you're raising about American people having like a Hollywood sort of, you know, superhero movie idea of things. I definitely think there's some truth to that, particularly in the way if we look at how U.S. military operations and wars and things like that are glorified. U.S. militarism is glorified in the American imagination. And, you know, the, the, the truly sort of anti-war movies or even just sort of critical movies, movies that are critical of war in some way, they're, they tend to be few and far between, but I mean, they, they're often quite good. I mean, I'm thinking of movies like Platoon, uh, the first Jarhead, which I thought was really good. I love that moment in Jarhead. I think this is in the beginning. I think the, the main character is in basic training or something like that. And they're doing some strenuous exercise as you do in basic. And I seem to remember the cat being on his knees and the sergeant or whoever is like screaming at him and blah, blah, blah. And he, he says something to the effect of, well, what are you even doing here? And the cat looks up and says, I got lost on the way to college, sir. And he like, the guy like took him and rammed his head into the board. I thought that was hilarious. But these are movies that, you know, show the horrors of war, but don't glorify it and actually show how destructive and backward it is on the one hand and how deleterious it is to humanity 
to do it, to the people who are carrying this out. You know what I mean? And so we're in a situation in the 21st century where we don't have a formal draft in the military, but it's basically a poverty draft. You know what I mean? And, and so we, we can never hope to escape the fundamental class character of all of this, which I think brings us back to our initial conversation because uh, this is the same class of people who are unmoved uh, to uh, sort of increase their support for Joe Biden, despite the fact that they may support what the U.S. is doing vis-a-vis Ukraine and Russia because of these very material issues. You know what I'm saying? They keep seeing money go to everything else except them. And wouldn't you know it when, when people, you know, continue to see their basic needs cast aside. Well, they tend to not be terribly excited to, you know, go out and vote or support you. But uh, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here as we continue. And uh, shout out to the uh, By Any Means Necessary chat. Somebody in there mentioned about uh, the movie Major Pain. Look, you know, look, that that was me and my dad's favorite movie to watch together for years was Major Pain. Uh, it seemed like USA, the USA Network would just periodically show major pain and we would always just sit and watch it of course uh, Damon Wayans uh the young lady that played Hillary and the Fresh Prince she was in it I can never remember her real name I think Orlando Brown was in that movie wasn't Orlando Brown the little boy the one for that so Raven who went through a, like a real tough time there I'm pretty sure that's uh Orlando Brown also for my wrestling fans uh, a cameo by Bam Bam Bigelow yes, there was. in Major Pain. Yes, the the Beast of Asbury Park, who was one third of the Jersey Triad in WCW mm-hmm. with Diamond Dallas Page and Chris Canyon. Diamond Arrest in peace. Dallas. Oh, Page. DDP. Loved him. No. Look, no. I, look, D- DDP is the real people's champion. I don't Look, care what anybody said. The 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 Rock, I the Rock was my favorite wrestler for a long time. He called himself the People's Champion. No, it, was it was DDP. You're talking about someone who didn't even really start wrestling. So he was legit like in his 40s. <laughs> yeah. And he was US champion, he was world champion, mm-hmm. beloved by fans, gave us the diamond cutter which and we see we see a million different versions. Look, I know people make a big deal about the RKO and oh, RKO <laughs> out of nowhere. Look, it's all right. But I feel like the diamond cutter actually he pulled out of nowhere. It would actually surprise you how he would hit that move. Big shout out to Diamond Dallas Page. He's basically at this point has built a very successful yoga brand, DDP yes. Yoga, and he helped Scott Hall 
who had serious uh, uh, substance abuse issues. He just died. Rest in peace. He helped Jake the Snake Roberts mm-hmm. get back on. And Jake the Snake has some real issues, man. Yeah. It, I, mean, I mean, if you ever want to see the the the, the difficulties and how, because people, I, I know people are like, oh my God, wrestling is so fake. Okay, okay. Yes, some of it is very orchestrated, but the athleticism is absolutely real. And not everybody is a superstar and gets paid, but behind the ring, I think that's mm. what it's called, the series that, that's Be, called. Yeah. Uh, or is it beyond the mat? Beyond, so, yeah. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's beyond behind the ring. But I, yeah, it's it's this it's this series of um, in depth interviews on you know what happened to these wrestling stars, mm-hmm. and it is I mean some of the stuff. I'm sorry, are you talking about Dark Side of the Ring? Yes. Oh yeah, on Vice. Yeah, oh, that yeah, was great. Dark Side yeah, of the Ring. Yeah. It is. I mean, first of all, if you think wrestling is fake, ask uh, uh, mankind. Yeah. <laughs> this dude, I, I just. Got thrown off of a cage. I don't <laughs> keep talking. I'm gonna look up yeah, how far in the air that just was. Like he 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 described once the pain that he is in every day after wrestling for so long and doing the kind of no holes barred wrestling that he would do the cage matches that he was famous for. Um, just if it's fake, then I, they must be just like in the alleyway, you know, just beating each other up with baseball bats because. <laughs> <laughs> these dudes, these dudes are are broken up almost as bad, if not worse, than NFL players. Honestly, yeah. with I, I think that you know the kind of uh, uh, support and insurance from the industry that's just as bad as NFL players. Yeah, you know, from what I'm seeing, it was 16 feet. Yeah, The Undertaker, a large, powerful man, also a reactionary. Unfortunately, I know. Love this hurt cops. my feelings. Uh, Kane too, actually. Is who? Also Kane also. Yeah, Kane, Glenn Jacobs, the mayor of some small town in Tennessee. He's like some weird, like libertarian type. Yeah. But anyway, the Undertaker threw mankind off a sixteen-foot cell, through a table, mm-hmm. and had the table not broken his fall. <sighs> who knows if Mick Foley would be here right now? And of course, this is what prompted. The legendary call by Jim Ross, greatest sports announcer of all time. Mm -hmm. And he said, as God is my witness, he's broken in half. He's broken in half. (laughs) (laughs) The greatest call in in wrestling history. And uh, yeah, and also this whole notion of wrestling being fake. Yo, you know what else is fake? Game of Thrones. How about that? And uh, what else y'all like? What is it? This is us. I just be seeing y'all talk about these shows. I don't I don't really watch a lot of them. All them Harry Potter movies, all that stuff y'all like is scripted. Fake. It's all fake. And professional wrestling is a scripted, live-action, simulated combat sports product. That's what professional wrestling is. Vince McMahon calls it sports entertainment. That's what it is. And so if you watch any episodic television, wrestling is the same thing, but again, it's it's live action, and there's lots of different, there's lots of things that make it quite different. And you know, folks, if, if you're of a certain um, generation, people may remember Fit Finley, who was, uh, he at one point before he went by Fit Finley, he was called the Belfast Bruiser in WCW. This was back when he had like long brown hair and stuff. And he was this Irish cat, and his, his catchphrase was literally, and it was very appropriate for him, his catchphrase was literally, my name's Fit Finley, and I love to fight. <laughs> but he, I saw this old, uh, 
interview with him and he talked about how he would deal with people who said wrestling was fake because at there was some years like back when kayfabe when they were really protecting kayfabe and trying to make what people saw on screen make it seem real the general rule was if someone said something against wrestling you basically had to beat them up and so what fit finley said he would do and if someone say came up to him in a bar and and say aren't you a wrestler yeah you know wrestling's fake and he would say let me see your hand and so they would show your hand and he would break their thumb he would take their thumb and just just break it because and he said that without without fail every time the first thing they would do after you break their thumb is they would stick their hand in their pocket and you got to understand in wrestling there are people who yes they do this simulated fighting but they're like legitimately tough people that that you that that you don't want to mess with and uh oh yeah somebody's saying in the chat the rocks a republican yeah he is yes he is uh, yes Yes. And you know that that that's a fact. That's I, I don't, a fact. I don't, I don't, I don't know about the connection. I, I I haven't figured out the connection between, uh, uh, you know, high profile athletes and and conservative politics. Oh, they're rich. <laughs> well, yeah, that's and, it. And in the that's case of it. The Rock, he didn't really, he didn't grow up with a lot of money. Yeah, that's true. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he really struggled. I mean, I feel like uh, I want to say in, in reading his story, he like used to wrestle in like flea markets and stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, The Rock is interesting when you talk about race in professional wrestling. Mm. Because The Rock's father, of course, is Soul Man Rocky Johnson. Rocky Johnson. Who was a pioneering black wrestler. And his maternal grandfather was the high chief Peter Maivia, who, if I'm not mistaken, became the patriarch of the Anawai'i wrestling family. That includes The Rock and Yokozuna and the Wild Samoans and the Usos and Roman Reigns, who's from Pensacola, Florida. He <laughs> went to Catholic when high you school. I were going to get there. Oh, yeah, the Usos <laughs> are from Pensacola, too. People don't know this. The Usos, know that. yeah, they went to a Scambia high school. I, I know people who went to school with them. Oh, wow. They're billed from, like, San Francisco, but those cats are from Pensacola. So is Roman Reigns. Nobody does it better. Because you got to remember, the Usos, their father is Rikishi who I forgot to mention, Rikishi fought too. Right, 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 right. Yeah, who was, who, was really, who was really big at certain points during the Attitude Era, particularly after Too Cool. But the reason I bring up the rock and race is when you talk about um, the WWF's black champions, which they don't have a lot of, in terms of company champions, which is a difference. You know, Mark Henry, for instance, was the world heavyweight champion, and he held the big, basically the WCW big gold belt. But he wasn't the company champion. The Rock was the company champion. Kofi Kingston, who I believe is Ghanaian company champion. Um, Big E, uh, who I think they totally did wrong. Big E Langston. Yeah. I think you would like him if you don't know who I'm talking about. No, Jackie. I know who you're talking about. I his, just completely forgot about yeah, him. Yeah, him, his, I want to say he's from like Tampa. I believe his parents are from the Caribbean. He was company champion. But see, they were so weird about The Rock's blackness because people don't know The Rock didn't even want to be in the Nation of Domination because he didn't want to, because the Nation of Domination, without saying it, the, the Nation of Domination was a black militant group. They had the little kente designs and everything. This was during the gang wars period of WWF when they had like the biker gangs and Los Bariquas with Savio Vega, who's also a black man, and all these sorts of things, right? And we're already out of time. Anyway, more wrestling talk tomorrow uh, here on By Any Means Necessary. We're going to watch the NDC. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow, y'all. Peace. Take it easy. By Any Means Necessary.